1: Greetings and salutations, my fellow creators. Welcome to Not Real Art, the talk show podcast that celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. I'm your host, Sourdough, and on today's episode, I'm honored to be joined by a true legend in the art world. His love for culture and commitment to truth-telling set the standard for investigative journalism in the art world. Growing up in Brooklyn, he started his journalism career in 1945 working as a copy boy at the New York Times. Eventually, he found his niche in reporting on cultural news. In 1968, he co-founded and was editor-in-chief for the American Art Journal. In 1972, he bought Art News from the Washington Post Company and grew it into the world's most widely circulated art magazine, winning numerous awards for its editorial excellence breaking stories, and exposing corruption in the art world, among other things. He is a prolific author of articles and books about art. He lectures and writes for Vanity Fair. Today, I'm honored to have this cultural legend on our show, the one and only Milton Estero. Wow. <laughs> hey, you did <laughs> yeah, it, not you're to- me. <laughs> you're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> you did it, not me, sir. Oh, man. It's such an honor to sit down with you today. Well, I'm
0: delighted to be here and I hope I can enlighten you and not confuse you.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm already confused, so uh, maybe you can, I think you can only help at this point. Milton, I mean, there's so much to talk about, and I've done a little bit of research here and have a bunch of questions, but I I thought I'd start on a more serious note, actually, because a big uh, theme or a big part of your life's work, as I understand it, is helping to return the stolen artworks in Austria that the Germans took from the Jews during World War II, and you discovered years ago that there was a cache of these artworks that the country of Austria was not dealing with and you took that upon yourself as part of your life's work to get that artwork back into its rightful the hands of its rightful owners. Where are we now in this journey in terms of returning these artworks back to their rightful owners, first in Austria and then in, in other European countries?
0: There's uh, still a a lot of work to be done, uh, uh, particularly in Europe. These are, uh, I think, uh, Leonard Lauder, who has been most active in uh, the campaign to restitute uh, so many works of art uh, that were stolen by the Nazis during World War II. He calls them the last hostages of World War II. There are thousands and thousands of works, and periodically, uh, almost every day, comes word about uh, another case, whether it's in uh, Germany or Italy or France or, or the United States, as a matter of fact, in which somebody is saying, these paintings belong to my grandfather and uh, they were stolen by Nazis. So there's a lot of work to be done. I feel that from what I've seen, there are still some governments uh, that are doing marvelous work are still some governments who are doing lousy work. The ones that are doing lousy work include Poland and Italy and Hungary. For example, with Hungary, there are masterpieces, masterpieces by Rembrandt and other great artists in the National Gallery of Hungary in Budapest that belong to a man named Baron Herzog, who was one of the richest men in Europe for many years. And the Hungarians, even though there's absolutely no question that it belongs to the Herzogs, the Herzog family and the Hungarians refused, there's litigation that is going on, eventually I'm convinced and others are convinced that the Hungarians are going to have to give it up. So This is just one example of so many uh, cases that are going on. The way it started with me was back uh, in the early 1980s, I got a call one day from a dear friend of mine who passed away some years ago, unfortunately, a man named Albert Elson. Al was a great art historian, former president of the College Art Association, and we were good friends. Uh, He was a great scholar on Rodin, among other artists. He wrote on Matisse and so on. And he said, Milt, even though he was trained as an art historian, he had a reporter's instinct for what a news story was. And he he said uh, he had heard about a monastery outside of uh, Vienna, a town called Maubach, that contained thousands of works of art that the... Nazis had stole from victims of the Holocaust, and he didn't know whether the Austrians were to be commended or to be criticized. And he said, "You ought to look into it." Well, about a month later, my wife and I flew to uh, flew to Vienna, and before uh, I left, I made two phone calls. One to a man named uh, Gerhard uh, Richter, who was then the government minister in charge of these buildings. And then to uh, the great Nazi hunter. So when we got to Vienna, I got to to the Nazi hunter. uh, And he, oh, uh, we exchanged some some pleasantries. And and on his desk he had a whole pile of folders. Milton, he said, I've been busy hunting Nazis. I haven't been looking for art. (laughs) He said, everything you want to know is in this article. And he takes out this article in one of the folders And he gives it to me, and I look at it, and I start laughing. He says, Milton, what's so funny? I said, this is an article that I wrote for the New York Times back in the 1960s. (laughs) He didn't realize that it was me. Yes. In any case, the next day, I went to see this uh, Gerhard Richter, the government official. And I came to his office, and he's sitting there rather stiffly. And he said, why are you here? In my usual pleasant uh, way, I said, uh, I work for this art magazine in New York. I heard about the monastery, uh, and I'd like to find out more about it. As a matter of fact, when can I go and visit? And he pounds his feet for on the desk, and he says, you cannot go. So I couldn't resist. I said, uh, Mr. Richter, and these guys like to be called her Dr. In, in Europe, as sure. you may know, but I called him Mr. Richter, and you were the, the stiff greeting that I yeah. got. Uh, I said, when I was a young reporter at the New York Times, a wise old editor told me that somebody, when somebody answers a question, uh, when the way you answered your question, that I should become suspicious that maybe you're hiding something. So the interview ended in about a minute and a half. <laughs> and I spent, uh, my wife and I spent about a week in, in Austria, and I found out it was a scandal. I would have loved to have written the story myself, uh, but I, I just didn't have the time. And I signed one of our bright young contributors uh, named Andrew Decker, and he spent weeks in in, in, in Vienna and in, uh, elsewhere in Austria, in Germany and Switzerland, Switzerland, and he came back and wrote this magnificent story. If it was a newspaper, he would have won a Pulitzer Prize because this was the first time that anybody had come out and actually indicted the government of Austria for hiding all these works. In fact, we put it on the cover, This uh, the story, and the title was a legacy of shame. And all sorts of things happened. And uh, we were the only publication in the world. Other publications, of course, were uh, reporting about the situation of stolen art. But nobody with the consistency that we did it. I was writing stories myself. We had correspondents all over Europe consistently going after the Austrians. And finally, after 10 years, the Austrian parliament ordered unanimously to turn over all the art to the Jewish community and then they had an auction in which the proceeds of all this art went to heirs of victims, needy heirs of victims yes. of the Holocaust. And at this auction, there was a well-known rabbi named Israel M- uh, Miller, and at this auction he, he gets up in front of the audience and he says, I want everybody to know that without Art News, this auction would not be taking place. Uh, finally, since you brought up the subject, I can yes. go on for hours on this thing, but very to final it, some weeks later, the rabbi was in New York. He was president of the Jewish Claims Conference. And he said, we're having the annual meeting here in New York, Milton. And I want you to come over and uh, to, to meet everybody. And so I came over. He introduced me to all the, the, the distinguished leaders of the conference. And then he presented me. And this was one of the most memorable evenings or afternoons I ever had he presented me with a shofar. You know what a shofar is. The ram's horn that's blown at Jewish holidays at Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, the high holidays. And he said, it's inscribed, which means in English, sound the great shofar for our freedom. And he says, Milton, since you freed the art, you sounded the shofar of freedom. Wow. To finish the story, there was a little publicity at the time, and one day I got a call from another friend of mine from the Forest Hills Jewish Center. I don't want you to get the idea. I know all the rabbis in New York.
1: <laughs> I, I don't. I, I'm glad you said that because I was starting to think that. Uh, I was a member uh, of the
0: Forest Hills Jewish Center, and the rabbi, a wonderful guy named Jerry Scarlick, called. He said, Milton, I heard about the, your award. He said, I want you to blow the shofar at Yom Kippur. I said, Jerry, you're out of your mind. I've never done this. He said, Milton, you're going to take lessons. Well, I took lessons from my son-in-law, Larry Rothstein, my grandson. How old were
1: you at the time?
0: Well, I was, uh, this is 1995. (laughs) I love it. So
1: It's a second career or a third career at this point. (laughs) Exactly, opening up a whole new career
0: for my grandson, David. And it comes Yom Kippur. There are twelve hundred people in the synagogue, not because of me. It's the final evening of the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people. The family is there, my children, my grandchildren, and the rabbi explains to the puzzled audience why he invited me instead of the usual rabbinical student yes. to blow the shofar. And I start blowing, and no sound is coming out, and I am sweating. However, the third time, boom! God was looking over me, and a great sound came out. To this day, uh, everybody tells me the family that there was loud applause. I was so excited, no, I didn't hear didn't it. You didn't even hear it. I didn't hear it. <laughs> All I remember is the rabbi's hugging me in front of the ark, and he's saying, "Milton, even I don't get
1: applause."
0: <laughs> but I was so good, they never asked me back. <laughs> That's the end of no my No encore
1: for you. Bye. Oh my goodness! Oh well, my goodness! Well, I understand. Um, uh a couple of years ago you received I think it was the Cross of Honor. Uh, yes, the
0: Cross of Science and Art, uh, which is one of Austria's uh, highest awards. I get a letter one day from the consul general of New York and he says Dear Mr. Restoro, pleased to uh, tell you that the president of Austria has awarded you the Austrian Cross of Science and Art. And would you accept it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I said, I'd be glad to accept it. Sure. And So it was awarded to me and to Andrew Decker, yes. the, the, uh, the, the writer who I assigned to do this piece, and did a number of subsequent pieces. And what was particularly gratifying was apparently the consul general had done his homework and knew all about all our stories that we had done through the years. And he said, I want you to know that you have made Austria a better country. Ugh. So that was quite something
1: yes that is quite something Milton do you think do you consider yourself a art lover first or a journalist first
0: (laughs) that's a great question Uh, that's a great question I'm a uh, I'm a journalist who
1: loves art how's that okay good (laughs) wait wait a hedge Right well, I, you know, I can imagine that you know I, mean, I don't know, you tell me, but back you know back you know early in your career as a journalist I, I you know w- why the arts, why culture was it just the beat you were given, and then you fell in love with it?
0: I was always interested in theater and art ever since I was a kid. I went to the Brooklyn Museum as a youngster as part of the school trip to the museum, and that opened me up a bit. Uh, my parents uh, were not art collectors uh, my they ran a grocery store in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. so they couldn't collect art, but they did, they loved music. And I listened to The Great Caruso, and then we'd go to the theater, actually, the, the Yiddish theater in Brooklyn, and that opened me up to um, a theater. At some point after I joined The Times, the way they gave you experience in those days was they you covered a police beat. And so they assigned me to cover the Bronx, and the Bronx was my beat. Sure. And I covered uh, court stories, murder stories, zoo stories. Uh, I was very lucky because the uh, assistant managing editor at the time, one of the great editors this town ever had, a guy named Ted Bernstein, and he loved zoo stories. And so I would get zoo stories on page one of the New York Times, thanks to Ted Bernstein. But as I said, I was always interested in theater and art, and so at some point I managed to get into the drama department. And there I was very fortunate. And Brooks Atkinson, who was one of the greatest drama critics, or not the greatest drama critic this country ever had, I became sort of a protege of his. And I got assignments to do little feature pieces. And then I, I became a member of the, the drama department uh, where I did reporting. I did off-Broadway, not off-Broadway, but off-all-Broadway shows because <laughs> I was the kid in the department. Sure, sure. But I must tell you, I hated drama reviewing. Let me tell you why. Because in those days... You had maybe 40 minutes to rush back. They had no previews in those days. Yep. You had to rush back to the office and write a story, a review for the next morning. And I would almost pray that I would see something good because, as I said, it was off offboard way and most of the stuff was not, not major hits. Experimental to be kind, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Once in a while, I'd see something great and I couldn't wait to finish writing a favorable review. And that led me into covering the world of art. I'm not an art historian. I'm not an art critic. I'm just an old reporter. And uh, that's when I began doing, I created at the New York Times, covering the art world, the way, say, uh, the New York Times covers the world or the Washington Post covers Washington. Okay. Nobody had done investigative reporting consistently. Nobody had interviewed the artists, the dealers, the collectors, the historians, and so on. And that's what I began doing and it was great fun.
1: So as an investigative journalism, breaking stories and and exposing corruption, doing, you know, chasing the stories, chasing the leads, did you think of yourself as sort of a neutral observer in the art world? Uh, I'm guessing there was you made some enemies along the way. Like, like, in terms of the stakeholders, who were your friends? Did you try to become friends with artists and gallerists? Like, h- how objective did you need to be, you know, as you wanted to build the credibility of, of art news? Uh,
0: there's no such thing as pure objectivity. Sure. I mean, the front page of the New York Times is more subjective in many ways than, say, the editorial page, because yes. the mere selection of stories for page one, yes. uh, if, you, if you have an eight-column headline as opposed to a one-column headline, that's a subjective decision. My only ax to grind was to serve the readers, Yes, to tell them what was going on in the art world the best way we could. This sometimes uh, upset some folks in the art world. In fact, one of the first stories that uh, we published, this was a few months after I came to the magazine, was a was simply a news story about the upcoming Rothko scandal. There was a great scandal brewing at that time concerning the Marlborough galleries and how they manipulated the estate of Paul Rothko and manipulated paintings and prices and so on and so forth. And we didn't have any editorial judgment. It was simply a a two-page summary. And this was the first time there had been a summary of that of that scandal. Until then, there'd only been little bits and pieces, paragraphs, here and there. And when the story appeared, I got a call from the gallery, uh, the attorney for the gallery, saying two things. One, he's going to sue me for libel. There was nothing libelous in the story, uh, but what he was trying to do was, was uh, possibly upset me and, and and get us off any future stories. It upset me so much that I was in the courthouse, a couple of weeks later, writing a story myself. (laughs) And uh, secondly, he said, we're pulling out our advertising. Now, that was an expensive uh, call because they were Art News' biggest advertiser. Yes. They were one of the art world's biggest. They were the Gagosian of their day. Sure. Okay. In fact, uh, well, in any case, so this did not affect our coverage of of the scandal. It did not affect our coverage of Marlboro exhibitions. We continue, of course, to review them. Uh, I think uh, it'd be interesting to know that for eight years they boycotted the magazine, but they advertised in every other art magazine, Hmm. because no other art magazine covered the story. Oh, I've met, uh, forgery has been another subject that has been very close. One of the questions I'm asked fairly often is, how do you know if something is original? Mm. How do you determine authenticity? And, of course, these are difficult questions. Give you an idea how difficult. Some years ago, I interviewed a forger named uh, David Haddad. He'd been arrested for faking hundreds, maybe thousands, of drawings, paintings, watercolors by Chagall, Picasso, Cezanne, Degas, Miro. He was a very talented He was brilliant. Guy.
1: <laughs> he was a genius. In fact, yeah.
0: the DA told me at the time, if this guy had 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 gone into music, he had had heard him play Beethoven, he would have been a great pianist. Yeah. Anyway, he liked the fake paintings. And he told me of the time he had worked in Paris when he was a young man, and he knew uh, the artist and poet Jean Cocteau fairly well. And one day he was in Jean Cocteau's studio, and Cocteau had uh, on an easel a pencil drawing he had just completed. It looked like a Picasso. It's not too difficult to to fake a Picasso. And the next day, who should show up at the studio but his good friend, Pablo Picasso. And with some hesitation, Cocteau says, Pablo, how do you like it? Pablo was so excited, he rushed over and he signed it.
1: (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) How's that for an endorsement?
0: All right. So somewhere
1: in this world is a fake Picasso signed by Picasso. Signed by Picasso. Wow. I wonder what that's going to go for at auction. (laughs) That's incredible, incredible. Well, you know, there's so much to talk about. I mean, you you referenced the Rothko sort of scandal. Was that about forgery? Was that about authenticity? What was that scandal about? With
0: authenticity, it was manipulating the estate and prices and so on and so, forth, a very complicated thing. It eventually straightened out and Margo was penalized uh, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth.
1: Now, was Rothko still alive at that time? Uh, no, okay, he, right, al- right. he already
0: died. But in addition to forgeries, um, we covered art thefts, we covered scandals such as uh, the reproduction of sculpture. Which is another scandal, which, is, uh, which should be uh, brought out even more today. The uh, faking of, of, uh, of paintings, okay, and some of the most skillful forgers. I met not too long ago man named I'm not making this up. His name is Mark Forgy, F-O-R-G-Y. Now, Mark Forgy is a, a hell of a nice guy. He lives out in, I think, Minneapolis.
1: I wonder if he's related to my friend, William Forgy. I actually have a dear friend, F-O-R-G-E-Y or F-O-R-G-Y? Of F-O-R-G-Y. Oh, okay. All right. Not related. <laughs> anyway, go ahead.
0: And uh, Mark Forgy uh, lived with Elmi de on the island of Ibiza, Mm-hmm. Elmer de was one of the great forgers of, of the 20th century, an enormously skillful guy. I'm sure there are museums and collections today that still have Elmer Picassos or Renoirs, but they don't know it. At any rate, uh, Forge lived with him and for about seven years, and when Elmer died, he left his entire estate to mark Forgy. I think possibly a couple hundred works are uh, all labeled Elme DeHoy. Well, Mark tells me uh, that somebody is now faking Elme DeHoy. <laughs> That's how insane some things have become.
1: Well, you really just, we just don't know what we're looking at sometimes, right? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, one of the reasons we do this podcast and a big part of our intention and and ethos in in doing this work that we do at Not Real Art is to help demystify the art world, to help, dare I say, help democratize our world. We feel like there's a lot of people out there who maybe are intimidated by the art world. Uh, They're intimidated to go into a gallery or museum, you know, so we want to pull the veil back. We want to, you know, humanize these artists that, you know, gallerists and dealers like to, you know, mystify and uh, and make exclusive, etc. I feel like that's been a big part of your work too over the years. I, I know you've lectured about how to look at art in ways that, that, in experience art, that in ways that doesn't make you feel inferior and things like that. What What say you about how a a quote-unquote regular person can enjoy art without feeling inferior. Okay. Whatever the
0: reason, increased leisure time, better education, the desire to improve one's life, more people are looking at art and talking about art and reading about art and writing about art, teaching art and dealing in art and faking art. And when we compare the art and all the arts of our own time with those of 100 years ago, we see how art has changed dramatically. It's extraordinary. It's, it's just a revolution. We see artists are willing to search further to risk experiments, which in the past would have seemed inconceivable. The change in painting, as somebody once said, may be compared to the most striking revolutions in science and technology, because paintings and sculptures are the last handmade personal objects in our culture. Almost everything else is produced industrially, to a high division of labor. Few people are fortunate to make something and sign their own names to it that represents themselves, that comes entirely from their hands and from their heart. And so one of the problems, it seems to me, uh, is uh, the uh, the trend is to substitute in criticizing art verbiage for thought. A wise old editor told me years ago about the circulation campaigns that uh, some of the New York tabloid newspapers used to carry on. How they blow out of proportion, all kinds of crime stories. And I wonder he said, after a particular series of stories had been splashed over page one, whether having a well, whether we're having a crime wave or a wave of crime news. And for some time we've been having an art wave. And this has been accompanied by a wave of news and reviews and essays. And yet to me there's a greater misunderstanding Uh, An ignorance about art. So the question is why? As far as I'm concerned, because there's an awful lot of nonsense written about art. Here's a line from a recent uh, museum catalog. The museum will remain anonymous. Oh, what the heck? It's a major museum. It was a major museum in Manhattan, the Whitney. Here's the quote. There is a singular combining of the purely somatic and the archly conceptualized and verbal in his aesthetic cognition. That's the end of the quote. Uh, this has been known as the botanical speech impediment. Uh, the man writes, or the woman writes, flowery. Now, I went to college. I don't mm-hmm. have a degree, but I, I don't understand what they're saying. <laughs> Here's another example. In spite of the extreme formulations that position aesthetic practices at the threshold of the opaque and hermetic, all aesthetic practices insist on their potential and collective leg- uh, legibility. Again, in fact, a few years ago, I went to a... Uh, a dinner honoring one of the country's great artist signs. I was honored to know him uh, his name was Maya Shapiro and he spoke for about 40 minutes and it was difficult frankly to understand everything that he said in fact the late Ruth Gordon you remember Ruth Gordon she was this little pixie she got up and was invited to, after he spoke to get up and say a few words so she walks to the podium and looking at Maya Shapiro she says, dear dear professor I didn't understand a word you said, but I think it's great. just great that you know so much.
1: (laughs) This reminds me of a famous quote. I don't know who said it, but it it goes something like this. Uh, Anybody can make a simple idea complex, but it takes real genius to make a complex idea simple. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Right. (laughs) It was Maya Shapiro who also said that to perceive the aims of the art of one's own time, and to judge them rightly is so unusual as to constitute an act of genius. Here, the most brilliant critic in 1890 could not have known that the three figures who were making history at the time, Van Gogh, Cézanne, and Gauguin. Van Gogh was considered a crazy middle-aged Dutchman working in the south of France. Cézanne was a modest man. He stopped sending his paintings to exhibitions. And Gauguin, of course, we know the stock book, where he, he became a painter late in, li- late in life and soon was off to the South Seas. So the question is not so much whether our critic could have appreciated the works of these men as to whether he could have known ab- about them at all. Again, the double talk goes on and on and on. Yeah, the degree of value attached to work of art. We know so much about the art market, okay. In some cases, it's us insane. I mean, a painting selling for $450 million. Yeah the value uh, of a uh, attached to a work of art, financially or aesthetically, seldom stands still, okay? There's hardly a single artist whose reputation has been stationary. There were periods there was no interest in Michelangelo. There were periods in which Giotto didn't mean a thing, and if you read some of Rembrandt's early critics, you wouldn't believe that Rembrandt <laughs> did these incredible paintings. Yeah. There are critics who remind me of what Will Rogers once said of a certain politician. He said, quote, it ain't what he doesn't know that bothers me. It's all those things he knows for sure that just ain't so. Someone once asked the artist Grant Wood how he dealt with all the publicity his art was receiving. And he said, I get a big kick out of some, a kick out of, some of these Eastern artists, Eastern critics, because he hated the critics. They didn't like Grant Wood." He says, you know my picture, American Gothic, the famous Mm -hmm. American Gothic. I had my sister in there and my dentist, both looking kind of stern, to go with the building, which I made look halfway between a church and a house. And you remember the pitchfork? (laughs) Uh, The pitchfork I had him holding. I did think of using a two-pronged fork like the one used to pitch straw, but I thought that was too old-fashioned, so I used a three-pronged. It tied the composition together better anyway. And he says, you know what one New York reviewer said? Such marvelous symbolism, the Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> the history of art is full of examples of artists and all the arts who were not appreciated in their own time. Herman Melville is regarded as one of America's great writers in his own day, hardly anybody had anything good to say about him. Or if you read the criticism of Ibsen in England, same thing. Wagner was hooted off the concert say as a clown. With, with Walt Whitman, the same thing. Back in the 1960s, I interviewed Alfred Barr at the Museum of Modern Art. He was the Pope, one of the world's, art world's most powerful men. And he said, Milton, I have two paintings in the basement uh, by a 19th century artist named William Bouguereau. He said, I couldn't give them away. But in the late 1890s, Every fashionable collector was buying not Cézanne and not Van Gogh. They were buying William Bouguereau for prices up close to $100,000. Now, $100,000 in the 1890s, I don't know what it is today, $6 million, $8 million or whatever? Yeah, fortune. And Rauschenberg, to give you an example... He had a great sense of humor and was one of my favorite artists as as a human being. The humanity of the guy, the decency, decency. He was a humble man, and he wore his success magnificently. And he, Rosenquist, James Rosenquist, who was a good friend of his, told me that he once went down to Captiva, the island down in Florida where Rauschenberg lived. And Rosenberg said, we had a few drinks. And Rauschenberg said, I want you to see my greatest work. And Rauschenberg took him into the next room where six bamboo poles were leaning across the wall with strings and cans. And Rosenberg said to Rauschenberg, Bob, I don't get this. And Rauschenberg said, well, I know you, I know you put things on the wall before you know what you're doing. <laughs> or what they are. To show you how the market has changed, I once interviewed the Kooning. De Kooning, back in 1951, he had a show at the Chicago Art Institute, and there was a prize of $4,000. This was 1951, and De Kooning won. And when the check for the prize money arrived, De Kooning went to a bank and asked for cash. He had to wait a few days for the check to clear. Eventually, he walked out of the bank with the $4,000. It was by far the m- most money he ever had. He was almost 48 years old. I just received his first paycheck. A friend told him he shouldn't walk around with all that money, but should open up a checking account. And the Kuhnick said he didn't know how to write a check. And he did open up his, his first bank account, but when lawyers cataloging his estate after his death, they found $5,000 taped to the bottom of his drawer inside of <laughs> okay? So we know about the prices for the Impressionist painters, but in the early 1940s, some experts were saying that buying the Impressionists was a risky idea. Uh, there was a dealer I knew named Sam Sault, legendary guy. He died some years ago. He told me that in the 40s, he was trying to sell Monet's for $3,000. Couldn't sell them. In fact, uh, Sam' uh, customers included the Rockefellers, Henry Ford, and, and all the top art collectors. And one of his favorite clients was Vladimir Horowitz, the great pianist. And uh, pianist uh, Horowitz was in this marvelous townhouse on East Seventy Sixth Street or Fifth Avenue one day, and they're sitting in the living room and he sees this magnificent Degas. This is way, way back, before prices exploded. And he says, Sam, how much? And Sam said forty thousand dollars. That painting today would probably be forty million. But anyway, forty thousand dollars, forty thousand. And Horowitz says, I'll give you thirty five. And Sam wouldn't budge and, and, and Horowitz wouldn't budge. So finally, Sam says, v- Vludger, apparently if you knew Horowitz, that was his nickname, Vludger, how much do you get for a concert? And Howard said, this was years ago, $5,000. So Saul says, I tell you what, I come to your house, Sam spoke like Sam Goldwyn, I can't p- mimic that accent. I come to your house, you play for me, Ravel, W. C. Mozart for one hour, I give you the painting for $35,000. And that's what happened. Howard's played for Sam Solz for one hour, and he got the Degas.
1: Anyway,
0: sometimes okay. you have to barter. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one of my favorite reviews that appeared in one of France's leading papers, Le Figaro, about the Impressionists. An exhibition has just opened, which calls itself an exhibition of painting. This was a review of an Impressionist show. The unsuspected passerby enters, and his eyes are confronted by an appalling spectacle. Five or six lunatics, one of them a woman, have found a rendezvous in which to exhibit their paintings. And he was talking about Cezanne and Monet and Renoir and so on. Anyway, as far as Rauschenberg, I'm reminded of a story how I visited him one day on the island of a Captiva, where he had a studio and an invaluable portion of real estate that he bought many, many years ago when the uh, land was much cheaper. And we were sitting there and, and with the, Bob Potor, his companion, and uh, Rauschenberg was reminiscing about how when he came to New York many, many years ago with his buddy Jasper Johns, and he didn't have the $10 a month to pay the rent. And so Bob, uh, R- Daryl, rather, Potor, his companion, said, Milton, would you like to hear a funny story? I said, I always like to hear funny stories. And he said... Uh, Oh, about six months ago, Bob was at his uh, secretary's desk. She was out for lunch and he noticed two pieces of mail addressed to him. Uh, and uh, he doesn't open his mail normally, but he casually opened up a letter and he found a check inside for $1,600. At least he thought it was $1,600. And so $1,600 wasn't very much money to rouse he put the check back in the envelope and put the envelope in a drawer adjoining the desk of the secretary. He didn't know that she normally doesn't go there. Uh, anyway, according to Daryl, about six months later, the secretary accidentally opened up the drawer and opened up the envelope. It was a check for $1,600,000. <laughs> so Rauschenberg... She Not so said, good with numbers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, he said something similar. He said, Milton, he says, I have trouble with zeros.
1: <laughs> <laughs> with circles,
0: right? <laughs> You've talked about uh, critics... When we look at art today, there are many of us who want to laugh or attack or sneer or many We see work that we consider pretentious or silly or put on. But not many of us have the courage to say so because other critics have proved wrong in the past. So the safe thing to do is not to go out on a limb. And the critic usually hedges and he writes something like, quote, the work is profoundly interesting in its way, although the idiom presents certain difficulties. That's an exact quote. <laughs> Uh, but in the long run, as far as I'm concerned, not everybody agrees with me on it. Reviews make very little difference to an artist, to a playwright, to an opera company. Critics do not make careers. Uh, A favorable review can be of temporary help. A negative review may provide a temporary setback, but I don't know a case in the history of art or theater or music where bad reviews uh, stop the course of uh, major careers. Uh, I remember... In the case of music, Harold Schoenberg, who was then one of the greatest drama critic, or music critics this country ever had at the New York Times. And Schoenberg, when Leonard Bernstein first came up, uh, Harold panned him. He panned him. Judean Schnabel, well, it's obviously controversial, but- uh, Great Some, movie maker. Exactly. Yes, I agree. He was panned- Some critics remind me of a story about Winston Churchill's racehorse. The horse had been losing and Mrs. Churchill suggested that one of Winston's inspirational speeches might motivate the animal. And Churchill followed the advice. He lectured the horse about the rewards that awaited him if he won abundant oats, bales of hay, lovely mare. The next race he ran last and Winston uh, was uh, addressed by his wife. Mrs. Churchill said, Winston, I'm surprised that your eloquence failed. And he said, I'm not. After what I told him, the poor horse couldn't keep his mind on the race. <laughs> I attended a symposium not long ago on, 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 somebody mentioned the responsibility of the critics, and what is his responsibility? It's the job of a critic to attend an exhibition and mark what he or she thinks about it on the basis of whatever background sensitivity and judgment he or she happens to possess. The critic is merely passing an informed point of view. It's a subjective statement, backed by whatever hard fact can be brought to bear. It's a statement may not be right or wrong, it's an opinion. And the assumption that criticism may be scientific is the worst curse that, that lies upon it. There are critics who really believe there are exact facts to be determined, and they have to proclaim them. As far as I'm concerned, there's no such thing as an exact fact in the whole realm of the beautiful arts. I mentioned Brooks Atkinson earlier. And I asked him what he meant when he said that appreciating art, theater, music, books, painting, architecture, all forms of artistic expression, he said, trust your own judgment, trust your own judgment. He never hesitated to pan a play uh, that deserved it, but uh, unlike many critics today, he refused to drag it through the mud. Uh, That's the problem with so much criticism today. And he said, apply to the world of art the same standards you apply to people. Be as honest with art as you are with friends and acquaintances. Tell the truth about what you think to everyone, most of all to yourself. People must judge art for themselves. It's for you and me and not for committees and not for panels of critics, not for schools and colleges. The art is appealing to us as individuals. He also uh, said one day, uh, we were talking about death of a salesman, one of the greatest dramas this country ever, of the world. And he said, what is it uh, some people respond so profoundly? Why do some people come out of the theater with tears in their eyes and some people are not moved at all? And this is what Brooks said. He said, every man or woman brings his or her own heritage, character, environment, and personal experience into the theater. In short, we bring certain gifts and certain prejudices. He said, what he thinks of a play or a painting uh, represents a mixing of his personality with what he sees. In fact, the adventure of his soul among masterpieces. You can bet the house that someone is going to dislike something no matter how good it is. Um, and uh, here, another film critic, another fine critic was Roger Fry many years ago. And they had a interesting idea. He said, let's consider what would follow if somebody were able to establish an absolute scale of values. Suppose we could demonstrate that Rembrandt was the greatest artist who ever lived. And by the same method, suppose we could establish an exact scale for valuing a particular work of art. We'd find ourselves in a pretty bad condition because for the knowledge that a work of art has a high aesthetic value is absolutely useless to us. What matters, and this to me is the whole ballgame, what matters is the intensity and significance of its effect upon us, either it hits you or not. It might be great for our egos to know that its absolute aesthetic value was 75 out of a possible score of 100. We might enjoy ourselves more, but we would not increase by one iota our enjoyment of the work itself. Um, suppose we visited when we visited Lou, or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we would look at our textbook and see that a certain picture was marked 92 or 95, and we would find that it left us absolutely cold. What a shock to our pride. And if we were with friends, how quickly we'd impro- improvise a few glowing adjectives, adjectives to conceal our lack of emotion about a painting. To me, there's enough hypocrisy in the art world as it is. The critic has to be something of a consumer guy. He has to say, he has to be a bridge the, between the creator uh, and the audience. He has to say who painted it. He has to describe it. Or he or she has to, has to say how well it was done. He stimulates opinion. He stimulates interest. And that is of less importance than a rationalization. He describes the work and how he felt about it. He should start the reading, not to say, it's marvelous, it's the greatest thing I've seen in the last week. I could go on and on. I, um, the story about, here, you could walk into a museum or somebody's home who collects and somebody, somehow your eye will zero in on the best thing hanging on the wall. It's happened to me so many times. I'm sure it's happened to you. Absolutely. Okay. Emily Dickson, Dickinson once said how she recognized a fine poem. She said she felt chilled, so cold that no heat or fire could warm her. And Whistler was once invited by a wealthy woman to see her Velasquez. He walked into her home very quickly with hardly a glance, told her it was not Velasquez. She protested that he had looked at the painting. A madam said, Whistler, well, I always swoon when I see a Velasquez. <laughs> I once asked Ivan Karp. Ivan Karp had been an assistant to Leo Castelli, then became a dealer. Fascinating guy, Ivan Karp. And I said, how do you determine quality? I said, "It gives me the heebie-jeebies. I said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and it's true. You get a certain feeling when you see something of high quality. At any rate, as one collector told me, be wary of fads. They're like stocks that shoot up quickly and then plummet. Zero in on the best work you see. Even the finest artists produce second-rate work. Don't buy simply to include a famous name or your collection. That's the problem with so many collectors to buy. They're buying autographs because if it says Picasso or Chagall or Twombly or whatever. Don't force yourself to like something that you don't like. We all change. Our eyes get... uh, older. When I was much younger, I wasn't crazy about Kandinsky, but now I'm crazy about Kandinsky. Yeah. Kenneth Clark, a great artist, once told me that when he first was drawing by Jato, it meant absolutely nothing to him. Eventually he joined and that Giotto was one of the great artists. He said he liked Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, but he said, it comes to some of the other modern artists, his heart did not read any faster. Some time ago one of our readers at Art News wrote to me and said, Mr. Esso, I don't like Picasso. I don't like Jackson Pollock and I don't like Jeff Koons. It doesn't doesn't knock my socks off. I said, he said, is there something wrong with me? I said, no, because I know an awful lot of people who don't like Picasso and Jackson Pollock and Jeff Koons doesn't knock their socks off. And yet they lead normal, healthy, contented lives.
1: It's okay to have an opinion. Right. It's okay to have your opinion. You know what I love about what you're talking about, I'm reminded of that phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly,
0: exactly. I got to tell you about, unfortunately, I never met this collector. But the guy has to be unique. It was told to me by a a dealer in London, and he wouldn't tell me the collector's name. He said, I'll I'll call him Mr. D. He wouldn't even tell me where Mr. D lived. Mm. He said, D was very wealthy, a fleet of expensive cars, a private yacht, of course, a living room full of Monets and a Van Gogh. and." The dealer said that Mr. D said to him one day when he was in his house, he said, Wait a minute, he said, Before you look at the paintings, I just have to switch something on. And Mr. D ushered ushered him into to see the first Monet. It was a coastal scene of the 1980s. And when the dealer was exactly four and a half minutes away from the painting, a sound system was activated and the room was filled with music by Debussy. And when the music stopped, Uh, When he he stepped back, the music stopped. Anyway, to finish the story, the next Monet of Water Lilies, certainly Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. It's a true story. And finally, when Hook approached the Van Gogh exactly four and a half feet away, Frank Sinatra lost singing,
1: My Way. That, I mean, this is so powerful for people listening because you and I think, was, again, one of the reasons why I was so looking forward to sitting down, the art world does such a injustice to artists by creating so much complexity and, and mystery around uh, art, and these art and artworks. I mean, artists just want people to like their work and own their work. And uh, the pomp and circumstance is not that of the artist, but that of the art world, isn't it?
0: As a matter of fact, with what you're saying reminds me of something a museum director once told me, advice to to people who really want to find out what this art thing is all about. And he said, what I urge you to do is just to open up your heart a little bit and recognize that what artists are trying to do is worth your time of looking and thinking rather than just go so quickly and blankly, rejecting uh, the impetus to value what you see and may not have an immediate emotional response to. Because what you did with that piece was to give other people license to just walk away without doing the work it takes to really look hard and think hard about art. And that's, I guess,
1: what pissed off so many of us. (laughs) Yes. 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 I was talking to an artist the other day and I was saying to them, I said, you know, we were talking about not real art. We were talking about the show and the the grant that we have and so many things we're doing. And I said, you know what? We are here to create a platform that helps artists tell their stories and promote their work. We are not here to criticize. There's enough critics in the world. We're cheerleaders. We want to cheerlead and we want to celebrate and elevate because um, the, 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 the contributions to culture are invaluable. And so, I so appreciate all those thoughts because it, it resonates as true.
0: In fact, relying what you just said, I remember once interviewing Henry Moore. I had called him from New York, and uh, he was already in his 80s. And I said, I'm, I'm coming to London. I'd like to come up to see you. We lived in this little town called Much Haddam, about 30 miles north of London. If you're doing a movie and you wanted a typical country village with sheep walking in the streets, sure. this was Much Haddam. Uh, and he said on the phone, he said, look, he said, I said I've been interviewed a thousand times. I don't have anything left to say. I said... I appreciate that. I'd be enormously grateful if you could spend uh, 45 minutes. Anyway, we went up there, and we really hit it off. We spent six hours over two days. In fact, we're now on a first-name basis. I said, Henry, if you had one work of art to live with, what would you pick? He had a sense of humor. And he said, Milton, I'd buy a cot, a cot, and I'd move into the Sistine Chapel. Okay. So the next morning, I spent the night at a local inn, next morning came back for the interview, I said, could you please elaborate on what you just said, or what you told me yesterday. He said, I changed my mind. If I had to pick one work of art, it would be a work by Masaccio, the frescoes of Adam and Eve that's in the uh, church of Santa Maria del Camino in Florence. He said, I would pick that. Uh, And I said, why? And he said, well, he says, I was just a kid living in this provincial town, mining town in England, and I received a fellowship to study. Under the terms of the fellowship, he had to go to Italy to study. He said, "My 1st I wanted to study the Northern Renaissance. I wanted to study Dura and Shungawa and all those guys up there. But under the terms of the grant, he had to go to Italy. Uh, so that changed his life. This opened up, he said, to Michelangelo and changed his life. But the, the, the tantalizing thing is, what would have happened if he had gone to study the the northern renaissance anyway to finish this i asked him how do you define uh, how do you define art could be a stupid question or whatever okay he says art is a way of making people get a fuller enjoyment out of life than they would otherwise that's pretty good
1: well, so over the years, given your role in the as an art journalist, uh, as a publisher, as a leader in the art community here in New York I, I, and the world for that matter, I'm guessing that when you met with artists, uh, certainly young artists along the way, they were probably anxious to to, to tap you for secrets and silver bullets and you know b- b- you know ways of of, of of helping them in their careers. And I'm guessing having shows in in New York where it was a big big goal for many artists. That you met over the years I mean when, when artists came to you and said You know Milt you know, How do I have an uh, art uh, exhibition in New York uh, what, what would you say?
0: You're feeding me a great line Best answer I got was I, I've asked many artists that question I've, I've tried to answer that question When artists asked me How do you get a show in New York And the best answer I ever got was from Philip Perlstein I do you know if you know his work uh, So you do uh, and Philip said that when he was a uh, total unknown, he had come to New York with his neighbor, his good friend, Andy Warhol. The reason he was uh, with Andy Warhol was he, uh, Philip told me this later, that when when um, Andy Warhol's parents heard that he wants to come to New York, he told him, uh, they told him that he would only go to New York if he was accompanied by Philip Pearlstein because they weren't sure whether Andy would find his way in New York properly, and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, so Philip is living in New York, and he had an exhibition. There was then one of the most powerful critics in the world, Clement Greenberg. Critics in those days had infinitely more power than they have today. To me, the the power is in the hands of uh, collectors and dealers. But that's another story for another day. At any rate, and so Greenberg picked Pearlstein as one of the artists, Everybody in the show was a well-known artist. Uh, Jack Torkoff, for example, who was quite well-known at the time. And Philip, again, was the only unknown. And there appeared a review in a magazine called Art International, which uh, ceased publication many years ago, a two-page review, since it was curated by Clement Greenberg. And uh, Philip said that his painting was reproduced about the size of a half page. The superstars... A few of them were reproduced about the size of a postage stamp. And so one day, after the review appeared, he just happened to run into the guy who was the managing editor of the of the publication, who happened to be a bit of an alcoholic. And he asked him, he said, how come you picked me? He said, I'll tell you how I picked why I picked you. He said, I've been fired from the magazine because of my drinking, and I wanted to pick the ugliest goddamn painting in the show. So that's how he, as a result of that, he got a one-person exhibition in a gallery, and he was off to the races.
1: Oh, boy. There's not a straight line to success. <laughs> well, and, that, and I think that's, that, that story just is so rich and so important because people want to, you know, there's this, I think, conventional wisdom that if we follow certain rules or if we meet the right people or we do certain things that you'll get from point A to point C to point D. And the reality is it's, you never know. Uh, exactly. You never know how somebody gets to where they are. Exactly. Dumb luck <laughs> is, I think, underrated.
0: Luck and networking. That's yes. crucial. Networking.
1: Yes.
0: Trying to meet, collect, go to openings and and, and galleries and so on, and, and that's a good part of it.
1: Yeah. Yes. What, what's your feeling? You know, as you observe the art world today, um, what strikes you about it?
0: Uh, another good question. I, it's uh, as I tried to say earlier. So much is going on. So much, so many things that we've never even remotely thought of or about uh, before. And how artists continue to experiment, and that's good. What's happening, and this is no secret. Uh, and diversity, okay, and me too. To use two of the cliches of today, and that's what's happening, which is good. I think there's a danger though in uh, over-concentrating on it and uh, but I think on the whole I'm optimistic and I can't see what's uh, going to happen in the next decade. I can't predict who's going to win the World Series, so I'm oh, not Come ra- on, <laughs> no. <laughs> yes you
1: can. I, I, my money's on you. <laughs>
0: And that's it.
1: Do you think artists are as a rule, and I know this is a broad question, but do you think cuz you've known so many artists over the years, do you think artists today are generally better off than artists were 30, 40 years ago?
0: Oh, no question about it. There are more opportunities. Uh there are more options. There're infinitely more galleries. Uh and so sure. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't have any statistics. Yeah. But I think um, artists are much better off today. Uh, For example, I went uh, the other day to see the uh, exhibition of Edith Halpert, the great dealer at the. Uh, I'm so
1: glad you brought her up. No, I literally look at this. So I brought this piece of newspaper because I was reading the Wall Street Journal the other day, and I it was, was so great show,
0: great show. Yeah.
1: So I wanted it because you know I was reading about Edith, and uh, in all in all candor, I did not know about Edith, and I was compelled by this article because so much of her work or her life was about you know helping quote unquote regular people own art. She was trying to make it uh, uh, affordable or accessible to people who maybe didn't have a lot of means, and so she had sort of been forgotten uh, maybe uh, a little bit uh, by the art world, but the uh, Jewish Museum is doing this exhibition honoring her life and honoring her work. So my question to you, which you've already answered, was going to be, did you happen to know Edith?
0: No, unfortunately, no, I did not. Oh you didn't
1: know Edith personally. No, okay. No, I did not but know But you saw her. the show. And t- tell M- me about my the show.
0: marvelous show and a wonderful tribute to uh, one of the great dealers this country has ever had she was truly a pioneer. I mean, when she was putting on exhibitions of Jacob Lawrence, for example, okay? Uh, she was putting on exhibitions of George O'Keefe, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Shahn, uh, John Marin, and and so many others. She was, a, I mean, a pioneer and, and a revolutionary, really. I'm sorry that I never had no, the No, no, op-
1: it's I interesting that you didn't uh, meet her. Was it just sort of one of those things you just, your, your yeah. paths never crossed?
0: Well, again, it never crossed. In fact, there are a number of people I would have loved to spend more time with. And so Edith Halbert certainly is one of them. I would urge everybody to go see that show. It tells you so much about the art world, okay? It's extremely well done.
1: So, um milt, you've been so kind to you know have me into your home where you know we're sitting here in your kitchen. It's just such a lovely uh, cozy, inviting home that you have. Uh, You told me you told me that you've been here a couple of years, but I'm guessing over the years in your home you had some amazing uh, dinner parties, uh, or at least uh, were invited to many great dinner parties uh, over the years. You know, with some fantastic artists and collectors. Uh, What are some of those uh, dinner party stories that you love to reminisce about? As a matter of
0: fact, one of the first uh, dinner parties. uh, uh, there weren't that many, frankly, but uh, it was, um, the guest was not an artist. Well, he was an artist, not a visual artist, John Pierce, the great opera singer. Uh, I had uh, gotten to know him when I was assigned to, uh, I was still a reporter at the New York Times, I forget what the assignment was, and uh, we became friends. Uh, and you talk about, we mentioned Humble, this was the personification of it, a wonderful human being. And one of my favorite stories about John Pierce, you know, he had been a cantor at one time, singing uh, the high holiday, holidays, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur at, at synagogues. And one day he had been uh, uh, was giving a lecture out in uh, Minnesota somewhere, and uh, he was staying at the home of a friend of his. Uh, he was a guest of the friend. And the morning of the concert... He had to go to a synagogue to say Kaddish for the memory for his late father. And some Jews do that on the anniversary of the death of a parent or a loved one. You go to the synagogue to say the the prayer, the Kaddish. And so the friend said, "John, there's a wonderful little synagogue within walking distance from my house, and we can go there. It's an early morning, six thirty in the morning." And so uh, the, as they were walking. Uh, John says to his friend, "Look," he says, "Don't tell them who I am. I don't want anything special. Uh, I'll go in. I'll, I'll go to the service. I'll say the Kaddish, and that was it." So the re- friend respected it. So they get to the synagogue, and it was a tall, a, a tiny synagogue of maybe it was 6:30 in the morning, and maybe 15 elderly Jews uh, in 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 the synagogue. And so uh, John and his friend sit in the back of the synagogue. And as so often happens in a synagogue or a temple, when the shamus or the sexton sees a stranger in the church or the synagogue, he will do everything he can to make them comfortable and so on. And so the service was going on. The shamus comes over to Jan and invited him to say a prayer. They were reading the Torah that particular morning. And so Jan gets up there and begins to sing the prayer, but in low key, in low key, and decided suddenly to open up. And suddenly this incredible voice, it woke up all the sleepy-eyed Jews. Okay. And it was like a miracle in this day they, they see this
1: guy singing. Gave himself away. Okay.
0: <laughs> so when this, the, the service ended, he goes back to his seat. Is about to leave. The shamus comes over. He says, "Mr. He says, I don't know who you are, but we'd like to hire you for the Jewish holidays.
1: <laughs> What's your rate? <laughs> what do you charge?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's <laughs> sometimes you just can't help but uh, exp- you know uh, expose yourself, right? right exactly. When your talents are so obvious. Uh, but th- they were artists too, but that's one of my favorite yeah, stories. Uh, so. That's Well, in my research for our little chat today, I was told that you might have some stories involving Alfred Hitchcock uh, or David Hockney, some of these famous characters. You've really
0: done your homework. Well, I try. You would try. have made a great reporter. <laughs> anyway, so okay, Alfred Hitchcock, There was a period in the mid-50s in which I, uh, you sure you want all this? I want
1: all of it, as much (laughs) as you're willing to give.
0: I was in the movie department. They asked me to fill in for somebody who was taking a leave of absence in the movie department at the New York Times and had a ball uh, doing reviews, interviewing stars, uh, Natalie Wood, and, and I met Marlon Brando and so on and so forth. And so one day I was assigned, Alfred Hitchcock was shooting on location a movie called, the Wrong Man, starring Henry Fonda. And he was shooting that particular day in the subway, the independent subway at the Roosevelt Avenue station in Queens. And they had all the equipment there. And this particular scene, oh, and so this was, they had managed to get permission from the Metropolitan Transit Authority to get an express a, a train and using it on the express lane. And the, 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 uh, he was shooting Henry Fonda, uh, who was portraying a musician at the store club who had been wrongfully accused of a crime. That's why the title, The Wrong Man, coming out of the train, coming home from work in, uh, late in the, in the in the morning or early in the morning or whatever. So finally, he calls a halt to it and does let's take a break. And the other side was the local train. And this was around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening, which is at the height of the rush hour in New York City. So with the break, Hitchcock grabs my arm and says, Milton, come with me. And we walk over to the other side to where the local trains are pulling in. And you can imagine there are trains, you know, the the lines packed like sardines. Mm-hmm. People are hanging by the straps and so on and so forth. Uh, and as a train would pull in... <laughs> Hitchcock, with me alongside, would stare into the window with those puffy cheeks and and so on. And there must and we did this for a couple of trains. And there must have been people, hundreds of people, going home that night and saying to their wives or girlfriends or, or husbands or whatever, "I could have sworn I saw Hitchcock in the subway last night."
1: Oh man, what a story. I mean, yeah, it was a little, not sure if you dreamt that or uh, maybe that was a nightmare, (laughs) you know, did you?
0: Yeah, that, uh, in fact, uh, the Times asked me, uh, and and what kind of indie does this? They offered me the job of Hollywood correspondent. Ah, yes. And uh, I turned it down because I knew it would take me off the beaten track, the track I wanted to be on. I knew I couldn't buy the New York Times. I always wanted to run my own show. I knew it was going to be either a, a little magazine or a little newspaper. I had no idea it would be art news.
1: So, well, let me stop you there, though, because I, I am curious, right? Because you you purchased this successful. I mean, Art News was successful when you purchased no. it. Wasn't it? Was oh, it
0: I, was successful. It was considered one of the world's leading art magazines. Yes, but as a business, it was, it was not uh, doing well. That's right. No, 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 thank you for the money. clarity,
1: because as, as yes, that's so. As I read it, you're right. It was a. It was, it was credible and it was respected, but it wasn't making money necessarily. So you come along, you want to buy it from the Washington Post company. You're a you know, young entrepreneur, what have you. How did you make that deal? I, I'm guessing you didn't have a, a ton of money to write a big check. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you did. How did you make that deal?
0: I was fortunate. I was able to get investors. Oh, One of the leading ones
1: I mentioned, I, I don't know if I mentioned the
0: earlier, uh, B. Gerald Cantor whom I had known when I interviewed him as an art collector when I was working at the Times, and he was a key collector. And I wound up with about six or seven investors. And although I did have, I insisted to the investors, I would have to have majority control, 51% otherwise. And so that's what happened. I was lucky. Things turned out well. The investors liked it. uh, And eventually I bought them out. And meantime, they were getting dividends and... uh, so um, it, it worked out very well. It was tough in the beginning, as I started to say, when I had that thing about the Rothko scandal story, because when I took over the magazine, it was uh, printing, um, oh, about 20, 22 pages of ads. So fortunately, we were able to build that up. But the problem was it didn't help my tennis game.
1: Well, you know, when you're busy working. <laughs> So selling it must have been a heartbreaker. Was it Was it bittersweet?
0: Yeah. The handwriting was on the wall in the sense that magazines, as you know, today magazines are going out of business or going into digital and, 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 and other venues. And my daughter and I, well, we were both running the magazine. In fact, Judy, my daughter, was a key figure, a key figure, a very key figure. In the extraordinary growth of the magazine she was in charge of the business side most of the folks reported to her advertising circulation marketing promotion and so on uh she was involved to some extent in, in editorial in the sense that solely she knew about covers so, and, and that sort of thing i know she knew more um, about the data operation than me i was involved obviously mainly in the editorial side sure. And so uh, we felt that after 42 years, I bought it in 1972 sure. and we sold it in 2014, sure. uh, it was time to go on. But I'm, as as you know uh, an indicator. I'm still doing some writing. I've done pieces for Vanity Fair, they sent me to Paris to do a piece about the Picasso family and their battles. Uh, I've done uh, for the Atlantic, for the art newspaper, for the New York Times. In fact, this was very gratifying. I did a piece a few months ago uh, about uh, Nazi-looted books. There are still millions of books in German libraries and Austrian libraries and other libraries throughout Europe that the Nazis stole, and and nothing is being done about it. But what was particularly gratifying was, or interesting to me, was that piece appeared 70 years after my first byline in the New York Times. No,
1: seventy years <laughs> that's some
0: kind of, that's some kind of crazy record
1: <laughs> it should be in the Guinness book <laughs> exactly exactly are, are you listening to Guinness book right wow what a what a what a you know what a accomplishment so yeah, so after forty some years, it was time to time to move on have you been tracking uh, the new owners uh, is it is it hard not to watch
0: well, as a matter of fact, it's been sold twice since I sold it on the new owner. There's a very nice guy named Jay Penske who comes from a very prominent family. His father is one of the leading racing car drivers and has a huge empire. And so he invited uh, Judy and me to lunch to pick our brain as to what he thought we should be doing and so on and so forth. And I wished him well and complimented him on the latest issue, which looks very good. So, uh, you know, how it it's, uh, he the magazine was changed shortly after i we sold it to instead of coming out 11 times a year coming out 4 times a yes. year yes a
1: lot of mags uh, pubs are doing that yeah. So as a collector, I mean, I know you were a big uh, art book collector and recently donated, I think, some 7,500 books to you're, you're your are Brooklyn. You were really something. I thought uh, you'd
0: uh, be a <laughs> fabulous reporter.
1: <laughs> well, it was a long flight to New York. So clearly, I mean, that what a gift to the library that you were able to do that 7,500 books. What was in the collection? I'm curious. And then what other kinds of artworks have you collected over the years? And Well, I'm interested primarily
0: in, in I've been Collecting photography, and uh, that's been uh, also. Uh, I take I take great photos of my grandchildren, mm. and also I got I got interested. What in kind of camera do you use? A an, Nikon. An mm. It's an old digital Nikon. Mm. I haven't taken it in it several years, although I may be going up on Saturday to the Rockefeller Estate. Uh, my nephew lives up there, and he tells me it's great scenes up there. Uh, but as far as collecting photography, I collect some of the great photographers who are extremely well-known, and some photographers who are great, but not well-known, like up here. You see these two photos up here of uh, two of my favorite photos by uh, one of my favorite photographers named Robert Duaneau. Consider Duaneau in the same ballpark as Henri Cartier-Bresson, and whom I, co- I collected photographs. In fact, I absolutely want to hear this story. If you're willing to talk, I'm willing to listen. Cartier-Bresson. I met him. Again, that was one of the perks of my job. Yes. I could meet artists, collectors, dealers, curators. And one of them was Henri cartier bresson I had called him from New York, and I knew that I had been told that he was averse to publicity, he just didn't was not interested in getting publicity, he wasn't interested in interviews anything like that. But I called him anyway. I like to play long shots once in a yeah. while, as I'm sure you do. I do. Uh, and uh,
1: Go big or go home is really, huh? <laughs> the mo- go big or go home exactly. is my mantra.
0: Very good. And so I said, you know, I'm coming to Paris, I'd love to interview And sure enough, he said, come over. So I uh, came over to his apartment. He lived on the Rue de Rivoli near the Louvre. Mm-hmm. And after exchanging a few pleasantries, I took out my notebook. And he said, oh, no, he said, I I really don't like to be interviewed. So I said, I must have misunderstood because on the phone. He said, no, no, no." and again, very politely, very graciously. No, I really don't. So I saw it. It wouldn't serve anybody. I put away the note. I said, in that case, let's tell each other some funny stories. Yes. And we had a ball. For the next, we really hit it off. (laughs) The chemistry was, you know. And uh, after 45 minutes to an hour, uh, I put away, uh, oh, I got up to leave and I said, this has been a great pleasure uh, and I hope I'll have the honor and the pleasure of meeting you in the future. He says, yes, it's been a great pleasure for me and I hope I'll have the honor and pleasure of meeting you in the future. He says, what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> so I said, nothing. I, I have a dinner date, but I'm free the entire afternoon. He said, would you like to join me? I'm going over to the Palais de Tokyo there, which was nearby. Uh, I'm going to help them hang an exhibition. I said, I'd love to. Yeah. We get in the cab. And he starts talking about photography and so on and so forth. And he says, why aren't you taking this down? <laughs> well, because now, you told me. That. By <laughs> now, we're on the first night. I said, Andre, why don't you make up your mind? <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yes. I wound up with a marvelous interview, yes. which I published in the magazine. And we became friends so that uh, whenever we came to Paris, in those days, we were going to Paris almost every year. Uh, we'd get together. In fact... Once he uh, went over there, he asked me for advice. He said, he please look over the book. Let me like, tell me what you think of the design and so on. But he, uh, a great human being, really, it was a pleasure to know him and a great artist, a great artist. So that was Connery. So anyway, so I have, hey, uh, there's a
1: Connery
0: for hanging there. Mm-hmm. A shop, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: which I- yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you for a tour after our little uh, interview here. Uh, I'd love to have a tour. How many, how many pieces of artworks do you think you have in your collection right now? Uh, or have uh, we lost count? <laughs> no,
0: uh, I think maybe around six or seven hundred. Yeah. Like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And are they uh, in art storage? Majority of those art pieces are they, here? they're all here.
0: Uh, Some of up in the country, we have a place up in, uh, yeah. up in the Berkshire, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. That's a few that we love. Uh, so you, but as an artist yourself, or in terms of expressing yourself creatively, clearly your writing was your primary art form, but it sounds like photography, you, you take photos as well. Did you ever paint, draw, anything uh, along the way? Did I ever what? paint or draw no. anything along the way
0: oh uh, yeah I forgot to tell you I do great caricatures of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck <laughs>
1: for my grandchildren yes yes uh, yes hey, hey that's high art you know that is high art when it's family
0: and I once tried to do a little fiction writing although I've been accused in the past of writing fiction for the <laughs> magazine
1: I think you I think you might be a good stand-up comic actually <laughs>
0: Anyway, I once did way, way back, must be in the fifties. I tried to do a short story. It was so bad I didn't even send it to
1: anybody. I just <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Well, we're our own worst critic, uh, are we not? Right, right. So, do you think uh, art galleries deserve fifty percent?
0: Depends on the gallery and what they're doing. Uh, some of them, as you know, they get much more. Yes. If you're a Jasper Johns, I don't know what he gets, but yeah, right, it's more than fifty percent. It depends on the gallery. Again, as we know, as we touched on before. But so much of the power, let's face it, and this is a story for another day, but the emergence of these, of Gregosians, Werner, Pace, and Hauser and Worth. Uh, is that good or bad? We'll leave that for another day.
1: Well, you talked about at one point, you know, a big story that really wasn't being covered was the, as you said it, the de- decentralization of the art world outside of New York. And I wondered to what extent that was driven by globalization. And I wanted to have, hear your thoughts about uh, about the, the decentralization of the art world. I
0: think it's terrific. Uh, call it decentralization. Globalization It's tremendous because uh, uh, out of it is coming, is emerging, so many artists who have been neglected yes. because of the concentration of Eurocentric or whatever you want to call it. Yes, and that is very healthy, enormously healthy. Uh, it's enormously healthy about uh, Me Too, uh, the emergence of women. No question about it. Uh, that's something I tried to do with the magazine. Uh, in fact, yes. In fact, uh, I made it clear when I took over at the magazine. Uh, that uh, New York was the capital of the art world, but so much is happening around the country and around the world. And so for the first time, the magazine had correspondence in so many cities. We were getting sorties out of Virginia. Now, when was the last time anybody had covered a story in Virginia or or Texas or Oklahoma? And then as far as Europe is concerned, too. So the way that has grown is is i think tremendous and very exciting
1: it's sort of you're sort of alluding on a certain level to this you know segment of art uh, often called outsider art as if to say like these are the artists outside of new york or they didn't go to art school and so you know but it's it's all art it's yeah. all they, these are artists too
0: in fact edith but i was pleased to see in her show horace pippin mm. okay horace pippin today is bringing over a million dollars or more I mean, when she showed him, nobody ever knew of a Horace Pendrick except maybe Edith Alpert.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, we have a conference for artists uh, every year, and it's a conference to bring artists together, to share a network, um, but to... to Ooh,
0: where do you have it?
1: It's in Los Angeles, and it the focus of the programming is really about uh, helping them with their business acumen. That's terrific. Um, yes, thank you, thank you. So, it's, you know, everything from copyright protection, to licensing, to marketing, to branding, to pitching, so many artists, you know, have ideas for movies or comics. You know what have you, but um, it, but there's a hunger. There's a hunger for programming and for uh, education around business and uh, because so many artists are small businesses so many artists are niche brands they why do
0: you do it in many cities
1: well we're trying we, we we in all candor we just started it this year in la we're going to do it new again. york well we'd love to bring it to new york we'd love to bring it to new york yeah well we'll we'll have to talk about that okay uh, but there's clearly a hunger for this kind of program kids are graduating from art school right with not a clue
0: exactly and some artists are being ripped off
1: Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I don't know if, to to what extent you're familiar with this, but I'm sure you are. But I'm 49, and when I got my start in Chicago as a commercial artist, as a graphic designer, I worked in advertising, and you know what have you? There was a real line between fine art and commercial art. There was a real line, and you know technology, the internet, the wall that used to separate. Fine art and commercial art, because all kinds of reasons, um, seems to have been uh, eroded away, exploded away. And it's hard now to sometimes see or understand where fine art starts and commercial art stops. There's more brand collaborations and sponsorships and what have you. And what's fascinating... um, and and i think uh somewhat uh scandalous is i i call it the uh, exploitation of artists um because nike will call and say uh hello uh, mr and mrs artist uh we're nike and we'd love to collaborate with you but uh we don't really have any money you know but it'll be great exposure for you and there was this meme that was going around in in the art world among contemporary artists about exposure bucks you know i get paid in exposure bucks as if a project with Nike or a cameo on a television advertising campaign is going to make their career. And artists oftentimes feel as though they don't have any leverage or any, they don't have the courage to stand up and say, "No, I, I'm going to charge you ten thousand dollars. I'm going to charge you a hundred thousand dollars, and that's what it costs to work with me." Because you know, for any reason, for any number of reasons, they want to work with Nike, or they think that you know it's going to be good for their career. So there's this new trend uh, that's happening that I'm seeing, and a lot of artists are are working for free these days in the in, in on the commercial art side. I mean, it's if if a brand calls and there's a collaboration, they often, too often, give their time away for free. Or very little. Uh, well, that stinks. Yeah, it stinks, and this is why we're doing the conference. I mean, because trying to shine a light. Uh, the best disinfectant is sunlight, right? And uh, trying to shine a light on this trend and uh, helping to you know artists helping artists understand that you don't get in life what you deserve. You get what you negotiate and um, it's a negotiation and if they're not willing to pay you a fair fee or rate for your time and energy and expertise, then it's not worth it because it ultimately devalues uh, all of art and all of uh, artists and their work.
0: Tremendously. This is, uh, this is, uh, again, congratulate you what you're doing, but you
1: should be doing more. Why aren't you doing it in New York? Is this where you turn the conversation around and start interviewing me, Milt? <laughs> okay <laughs> is, this, is this the journalist coming out at you well look in all candor to answer your question so obviously because you a many of things yeah no it's um and thank you for asking uh, we have been very deliberate in the last year trying to stay small to uh what i call build our prototype, build our model. And essentially what we're trying to do with Not Real Art is create a virtuous cycle of media-centric, artist-centric programs that uh, serve to celebrate and elevate artists in their work, help them tell their stories, but do it in a way that also helps us create content and programming that we own and that we can distribute exclusively, etc. So, the podcast is obviously one of those uh, programs. The conference is another one of those programs. The artist grant that we have is one of those programs. And so, in terms of the grant, for example, uh, we don't just give artists money and let them go on on their way. We embrace them for the better part of a year, year and a half, and we create content around them, and we produce an exhibition around them, and we continue to we have them on the podcast. We have, you know, we're really trying to help them tell their stories. And so, for example, uh, we we announce the winners. We have it's a small grant, uh, but it's uh, means it's very meaningful. Well, it's uh, it's the not real art grant. It's uh, we self fund it. It's a, a twelve thousand dollar grant. We give twelve artists a thousand dollars. We announced the winners uh, at our conference, which we did last spring. Did
0: you get any publicity about this at the time?
1: A little bit in, in the local papers, uh, a little bit, but, but not, nothing uh, national. I mean, because, Mill, you know, let me be clear, you know, we feel like artists get screwed all the time. And the way to help artists uh, uh, empower them, because we want to empower artists, um, the way that we want to do that is with information, with education, with knowledge. Um, for them to to bolster their courage to stand up, you know, to this kind of exploitation or what have you, and just really understand the the invaluable uh, currency they bring to the world and to culture, and um, so so this is what we're doing. And, and quite frankly, I don't know if you saw the study, but uh, Ernst and Young, right? Ernst and Young, uh, a couple years ago. Uh, partnered with the you know Society of Authors and Composers and uh, I'm forgetting the, the full name but you know who I'm talking about uh, the United Nations as well and for the first time uh, really in history, hard to believe uh, Ernst and Young helped did a global study over a couple of years and finally for once quantified the value of the creative arts to the global economy That's and, fabulous yes, And so it was across 11 sectors the visual arts was one of them, the performing arts was another. Of course, architecture, uh, publishing, gaming, of course, film, TV, across 11 sectors, music, radio, um, they valued the creative arts to the global economy at $2 trillion. Now, that's an impressive number, but I would argue that that's underperforming and not even accurate. I mean, I would think that <laughs> maybe it's even more. And part of the reason it would be underperforming is because artists are getting screwed a lot and they don't uh, have the the business acumen a lot of times. To, to fight for their value. Yeah.
0: Artists, teachers, and doctors are uh, among the most underappreciated people yes. in the world. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, and firefighters and policemen too. That's another story. Right. Right. Yes, yes. And if we were really paying people uh, based on the, their contributions to the common good... Uh, and the value of what they contribute to the community, it would it would be a different state of affairs. I you know without getting into a whole thing, I think it's uh, completely despicable that teachers, Boy, do, uh, and you firefighters. Want, do you want some wine? Or- <laughs> no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. This is great. Hey, did you happen to remember the name of that Nazi uh, hunter that you were talking about earlier? Slipped again. <laughs> well, it'll come back. It'll come back. You you said earlier that uh, that uh, it, it came to you. So I wanted to I wanted to bring that up. Simon Wiesenthal. Simon, okay, so pick up the mic and uh, say that again. Simon Simon Wiesenthal. Okay, okay. Yes, uh,
0: and I, I told you what happened when I met him. Yes. A wonderful man, and another person I would, I would have loved to uh, know better and see more often, and so on.
1: So, Milt, uh, they say it's rude to ask somebody how old they are, um, and I hope I'm, uh, and I'm, but I'm going to take a chance. How how, how old are you, Milt? How old? 91. 91. All right. Well, my God, you, my friend, are inspiration because I hope to live that long as well because I have two kids. I have a seven-year-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old, so I want to live a long, healthy life. Please help me understand. What is the secret to living a long, healthy life? (laughs) How have you done it?
0: Another good question.
1: One of the secrets,
0: it's not a secret, and I'm I'm not the only one who has said it is uh, to be fortunate to uh, do something that you love to do okay and so i loved being a reporter at the new york times i loved creating this uh, american art journal magazine and i love being 42 years with art news yes. i can't tell you how again i uh, have used a quote of Noel coward work is more fun than fun
1: <laughs> you know we I couldn't agree more I love what I do and I always have never every day for the most part I've woken up excited to 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 uh, do what I do and I that resonates is true if you wake up every day and you're fortunate enough to to you know um, be able to focus on things that you're passionate about that is uh, a, a propellant right for life and uh, so you know when you look back on your career and your life. What's the best advice you ever got?
0: That was that relates to what I just said, Scott. Uh and that is again, find out what you love to do with your life and and if you're lucky enough to do it, then th- that's it. That's it. That's um okay. List of homegrown advice from my mother who was a uh, she was born in Poland, came to the U.S. when she was a little girl. My father came to the U.S. from Belarus when he was a little boy, 1902. She came in 1903. One of the things that I got from her was, well, it's the Yiddish words, but don't look at others. Be, be content with what you have. I don't know how I got on that, but
1: well, I, it's it's it, we live in a time right where, and it's you know we live in a capitalistic economy. It's all about trying to sell us things and make us discontent with what we have, right. so that we buy new stuff. And the reality is, the secret to happiness is being content in your life where you are with what you yeah. have, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, what they inst- well they instilled in me again a, a love of 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 culture, to want of a better word. Yes, as I mentioned earlier listening to Enrico Caruso and others, which uh, led me to get into a whole collection of great cantors.
1: Mm, mm, mm. Yes.
0: <laughs> John Pierce, and I wound up with, uh, getting from my father recordings of some of the great cantors, the Jewish cantors. Uh, Yessela Rosenblatt and Quartan Beryl and I still have some of the audio ones, and that... Again, led me to opera and so on and so forth.
1: What advice do you give to young artists uh, today when they come uh, when they come knocking?
0: Again, I used the word network before. Some years ago, there was a dealer named uh, Andre Emmerich, who was a very prominent dealer. He died some years ago. And I asked him, you know, uh, what advice do you have to? This this goes back to maybe thirty years ago. Or so he says, he says, if Leonardo da Vinci walked down Madison Avenue, he had trouble today. He'd had he'd have trouble getting a show. That's how things. That's how tough things were. I don't know. If, oh, and and in those days too, as you know better than me, so many dealers, you would send them slides, but that's gone. Yep. I don't know of any dealer who looks at slides, and frankly, I don't know exactly, you know, how they come across uh, signing new orders. But uh, again, again, part of that, for want of a better word, networking and, and, uh, and getting to know um, what's going on, getting to know dealers, getting, by network going to museum openings, you get to know collectors, and little by little it grows.
1: Who are some of those artists you think that have done uh, over the years that you knew that do a great, that did a great job of networking and telling us? Schnabel. Yes. I thought you might say Jeff Koons.
0: Uh, Okay. Yeah. Schnabel, Koons, who else? Well, I don't know uh, if you asked that question. I should have. I never did ask that question of Rauschenberg or Johns, whom I, I only met a few times. So- I don't know. I don't know what to
1: say. If you could have dinner with one artist and one artist only, who would it be? Today? Yes, oh, wow. or ever. I mean, you know, if you if you could sit down, artists that you knew, artists you didn't know. I mean, if you, or or if you had a dinner party with you know two or three artists, uh, you know, who would you invite?
0: Well, Wassenberg would be one yes. of them. You really liked him. Didn't such you? a delight in that sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I once assigned a writer to do a piece for Art News to ask. Prominent art historians, folks who have written about Leonardo, who have written about Michelangelo, who have written about Cezanne. If they were alive, what would you like to ask them? And uh, Leo Steinberg had the funniest one. He said, with Michelangelo, he was being He had a great sense of humor. He'd
1: "How's
0: how's your mother? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, let's talk about something important, right? Right, right, right. All right, all right, oh, right That's right. That's fantastic. So, if you, could, if you had to live with only one piece of art.
0: Yeah, the voting party by Renoir in the Phillips collection. Uh, the You know, joie de vivre, the joy of life. That's all in that one painting. That's it. That's
1: it. Um. Milton Estro, I, I, I tell you, this has been a delight. I feel like I'd want to sit here for another two hours and talk. Can we, can we come back? And can we do this again? I wanna be respectful of your busy day and, and time and just I'm so delighted, I'm charmed, I have a million questions, but uh, I'm just gonna be grateful for the, the time we've had here to here today together. Thank
0: you. And I wanna compliment you again. I've been interviewed a few times through the years, but nobody has been more probing skillful than Scott.
1: Oh well, <laughs> well. Thank you for that. I'll just you know I'll say thank you. That's uh, how you're supposed to take a compliment. And uh, before we go, I wanna I wanna shout out uh, to your amazing granddaughter uh, Emily who who put us together. She's, yeah, she, Emily, we love you. Emily, shout out. She's fabulous. She told me a great story that speaks to your your humility. You know because she said you know for me we, he was always just my grandfather. You know and I guess when you years ago you attended, she attended with you, I guess it was the 100th year anniversary of art news. And so she got a sense of your role in the art world and the uh, scale of things and what have you. And I guess she turned uh, to her brother and said, is grandpa a big deal? <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, that, oh, thank you so much for telling, oh, I love that. <laughs> is grandpa a big deal Isn't that just sweet? i just love that right because uh it speaks volumes about you about your family and uh as a new dad uh, myself i you know I, I listen to those stories and it's great inspiration uh, for me as well
0: that uh let me tell you something you mentioned jeff coons
1: yes There was uh, the annual
0: meeting of the uh, International Fine Prints Dealers Association, and it was at the Javits Center. Mm. And I went there because I wanted to see a couple of dealers in connection with an article I'm working on. And I stayed. Uh, Jeff Koons was being interviewed by a curator curator at the Museum of Modern Art.
1: One of the things that's interesting about Koons is that He's been such a great salesman, right? He can really promote his work in a way that I think is unheard of, and I mean, art- artists are typically not great at pitching themselves. And you know, it's funny at our conference uh, last spring, I got into, I got on my soapbox a little bit about, you know, I think you that a what a bit. I got on my soapbox a little bit at the conference about how. Because um, you talk about networking and we said the same thing, it's like you got to be out there. And I said, um, you know, in my view, it's absolutely okay uh, if you're antisocial. It's okay if you don't want to talk to strangers. Yeah, but if you're a shy person. You're shy, you can't help it. But what, you, what is unacceptable and what you absolutely have to figure out how to do is tell your story when you're asked. Be able to talk about your work, why it's important, what inspired you, what it what it means to you. Do not be inarticulate about your own story. You can be antisocial all you want, <laughs> but when asked, uh, be ready to tell your story. So, well, Milton, you have been amazing at telling your story uh, with me today. I'm just so grateful for our time, and uh, uh, I'm you know grateful to Emily for putting us together, and uh, thank you, sir.
0: Thank you again. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and uh, I admire your uh, ability as an interviewer.
1: Thank you so much, thank you so much. Have you, uh, I forgot to ask, what other podcasts have you uh, have you been None. on? You're this just, is like this is your first podcast my debut. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, this is quite an honor uh, to have you debut uh, on our podcast. Well, we'll take it. We're lucky and grateful. Oh, you've got to let me know when I can hear. I will. Well, uh, well we're we're going to get you on the uh, the programming uh, schedule here. It'll probably be two weeks. I will let you know uh, for sure. Milton, have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at NotRealArtificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough out.